Thank you, Alan. We have been going through the book of Romans, uh, as you heard from Alan just talking about that. However, I do want to take just a, a brief break, give you time to breathe, but I want to look at some words, some terminologies, some ideas that are found in the book of Romans that, that the Apostle Paul is going to write and talk about. And I wanted to kind of just uh, dig into those words over the next few weeks, because once we start rolling here a little bit more, uh, th- these terminologies will come up and these questions will begin to, to arise. So I want to do some word studies with you, just a little bit different, but we'll, we'll be digging into those. The first one really is this idea of being called by God. What does it mean to be called by God? Now, when I was seven years old and uh, I was here in this church and I'd given my life to Christ and I felt that God called me to go into the ministry. Now, after I understood that, then at school that week, I performed my first wedding. (laughs) I wonder if I need to let John and Julie know that it may be official. Um, I mean, they even had rings in the whole, the whole works, all right? Um, but it, it, was, it was, you know, this is what's going to happen, you know. I'm going to be a minister. I can do these things now. And so there, there we go. Now, how do you know that you're called by God? And what does it mean to be called by God? And there's different ideas of what calling is to be chosen for something, all right? So I, I think there are five main ideas, as I've done a lot of research this past week, that are expressed in Scripture about this term call or call calling, and it's used in these different ways biblically. So what is your calling, or what is your call? First off, to call means to summon or invite. Now, that that word can be that someone has summoned or invited you, or it can also be that we have, in our sense, given a calling to God where we have summoned or have asked Him to help us or we've invited Him into our lives as well to, to protect us, to provide for us, whatever. To call can also be an equivalent to um, the, the, the term to name something. So we, we call somebody a name uh, and, and such... God has also called the light day and the darkness night. And, and, and where the angel instructed in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Joseph, he said about Mary that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now we read that word Jesus and we thank Jesus. But to understand the meaning of Jesus, you shall call his name Savior. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. So there's significance in all this. To call can also express the idea of, of designating. So you're going to, to designate something or someone, or it can also mean that you're going to salute someone by, by name. But it also has this aspect of, of a prohibition in Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, where Jesus says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. So here we have another understanding of calling, giving this, uh, this designation of a name. Um, calling may also be synonymous with the aspect of vocation. A calling. I'm, I'm called into ministry. You may be called into engineering, or your calling may be a fireman. Your calling may be a, a, an elementary school teacher. So it's, it's synonymous with vocation. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 24, Paul writes to the church there, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Well, do not be concerned about it, but, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord, but likewise he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, Sam so eloquently put out for us earlier, that 30 pieces of silver, we were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them there remain with God. The New Testament speaks of God calling or choosing or electing us 
and it often refers to Christians as the chosen ones or the elect. You'll hear this in the book of Romans. You'll find this in the rest of the New Testament. The church and Christians are called the chosen or the elect of God. And, and, and so when we speak of these statements, many have found an issue to really to debate over those words through the years. And we will kind of discuss a little bit of that today. All right, because what it comes down to is not just the calling or the chosen or the election, but we are then going to begin talking a little bit about predestination and how before the world began that maybe God determined who would be his. Now, before we dig in, I want us to look briefly at some of the words used in the Bible when it comes to this idea of chosen or election or predestination. The first one is this. It's a verb that is used, repeatedly translated, choose. The word is eklegami. It's a combination. It's an active verb. It's a combination of, of two different words put together. Ek, which means from or out of. And lego, which means to, to say or to choose or to pick out. Now, it occurs in classical Greek in a present voice. But in the New Testament, and most literature found after the New Testament, it occurs in a middle or passive voice. So when we talk about a middle voice or passive voice, the middle voice means that it's something that I am doing for myself. The passive voice means it's something that is being done to me by someone else. All right? So eklegami. The next word is an adjective. It's used as the chosen ones, eklektos. And in classical Greek, again, it is, it is this connection of a person or thing which is then chosen. The term originally had its meaning in a military language. And, and so we would call it the draft in America, all right? They would choose you to be in the military, and then they would choose you in which positions you would serve, and they would make those choices or those elections of individuals for the task that they were supposed to do. So it was a military turn of an adjective that they were chosen for specific things. It also had its political sense in which someone was chosen for a specific role in politics or for some duties that needed to be carried out in the political world. It's interesting to note that in the Hebrew language within the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, they use the, the Hebrew word bachar, which also carried with it this aspect of being chosen. All right. Now, that word bahar is the strongest word used in the translation of the Hebrew into the Greek Old Testament, into the, New, uh, into the Greek language. And it was always used for God electing or choosing the people of Israel. But it was also used for the people electing or choosing God. All right, so the use of Bahar indicates that the Lord's election of Israel does not disregard the decision of the people as well, that they could choose to be obedient to God or to defy him and deny him and his will. Finally, there is this noun which is translated the chosen, it's eklage. All right, and it is the classical Greek term that is used for the simple act of. I've made a choice. It's my choice. I'm choosing, all right? And that word is used seven times in the New Testament. The emphasis then is upon the free choice, not only of God making a choice, but we making a choice as well. Now, there are other English words that we translate uh, for words such as elect, chosen, predestined. They kind of carry the same connotation as this word, eklegami, eklektos, and, ekle and eklege. All right, so, but these words, however they're used, they are dependent upon the context in which they carry a different application or a meaning. It's funny how language has its, its way of meaning something totally different. You know, we, we often will use words today, and we don't quite understand where that etymology comes from. I learned a lot about my use of words, especially when I went to Ukraine years ago. And I had an interpreter who was with me, and when I would speak to people, Sometimes she would look at me and she'd go, 
What do you mean? All right. For example, one of the things that I had said was, you know, you know we had this disagreement and, and we butted heads over things. And she looked at me and she then looked at my rear. And she looked at my head. She says, I don't think you mean what you're saying. I said, well, yeah. I said, we, we, you know, we butted heads over this issue. Do you know what you're saying? I said, well, yeah, I know what I'm saying. She says, I don't understand what you're saying. So I explained to her that we had come to a disagreement and where we clashed as if we were two rams butting our heads trying to push our way there and we were not going to give in. She says, oh, forehead to forehead. And that's how they would understand it. Oh, you went forehead to forehead. You had a meeting of the minds that did not agree. I said, oh, and she says, but you say butting heads? All right, well, so, so we have to look at the context in which things are written. And, and so these words carry with them an importance whenever they're in the right context. So being called or being chosen doesn't always have to deal with, biblically, salvation. And yet we use that a lot. All right, so we'll kind of go through some of these ideas. I want you to come along with me this morning and do this exploratory work through language, specifically what it means to be called or to be chosen. First, Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, is called my Son, my Chosen One. He's called that by God the Father. So Jesus is chosen as well. Does that mean that Jesus was chosen by God for salvation? No, he didn't need salvation. Luke chapter 9 verse 35 tells us that a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, we're told, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus, the Messiah, is chosen by God. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, living stones rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we ourselves are chosen. Now, this, this choosing of Christ was done for a specific task. Messiah was to come into this world for a reason, to accomplish something. And that redemptive work was predestined or predetermined, foreknown by God ahead of time, what he was going to do with his son in this world. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 says, For he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Before the foundation of this world was, God had chosen his son Jesus to be the one that would redeem us, that would bring us back into a relationship with him because we're going to blow it. All right? so, but he was chosen for that. Obviously, Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, was not chosen for his salvation, but for the work and the service of bringing our salvation to fruition. Second, as with Jesus, when used about human beings, sometimes the language of being chosen or election refers to the, to the choice that God has in us for service for us to do something for him, but he's not chosen in, in that sense for our own salvation. See, God decided that he was going to use certain individuals in history to play specific roles in the plan of redemption, though their redemption may not be a part of that. But he was still going to use them to fulfill his purpose. So to create the nation of Israel, God chose specific people such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Joseph. We can go on down the list how he chose specific people to fulfill his will in this. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7 and 8 tells us this, that, that you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made, him, made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, all these shites, all right? And he says, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. You see, God chose Abraham. Paul reiterates that in Romans chapter 9. He's going to dig into all this in chapter 9. We get to it beginning in verse 17 through 13. He says, and not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now stop a second. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. What? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I mean, he says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, all right, but the children of the promise. There's a difference here. And they're counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah, all right, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, through though they were not yet born, had done nothing neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, so just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not mean you're a child of God. Israel gets this wrong. We've already talked about that in Romans chapter 2 and 3 when they were proclaiming that because they were Jewish, they were better off. And Paul last week said, what? Are we any better off because I'm a Jew? No, we're not. We've blown it too, just like the Gentiles have done. And here he's going to tell us that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. It's not about being a child or the offspring of Abraham. It's about being a child of the promise there's where it and so he has called us to that promise there's a difference in this calling god chose moses he chose david we know all these wonderful people of the old testament how god worked in their lives and he used him to accomplish his great masterful plan in the scheme of redemption but he also chose other people who we know he does not offer salvation but he chose them for a specific task, such as a man that was Pharaoh over Egypt in the time of Moses. God specifically chose him. Cyrus, who was the king and the ruler over Persia, when the, the, Egypt, or the Israelite people were slaves under his captivity, God chose him, why? To send them back and to rebuild the temple and to prepare a way for the Messiah to eventually come in. He chooses people, though he does not give them the redemptive work of salvation, he chooses them for service at times. When God calls, he often calls us into ministry, into service for his purposes and his plans. Many of God's leaders received their call of service from God in some dramatic way. I mean, wow, think about Moses, the burning bush. Now, there was some drama there, I mean, and it was very significant. And, and Moses understood there's something unique about this, and then he hears a voice coming from there. We, we understand that. We, we, we go into, into Saul on his journey to Damascus as he is persecuting the church, and God calls him on that road to Damascus with this blinding brilliance of the bright, shining glory of Jesus before his very eyes that he actually literally goes blind and then he's taken into Damascus and he prays for three days until finally Ananias comes and tells him about surrendering himself to Christ. Those are dramatic experiences. Like I said, I, I felt called when I was seven years old. I don't know, there was no dramatic experience in my life. 
And some people will even hesitate to say that you should not even consider ministry unless you have been dramatically called by God with some kind of experience. And some would even say that you really are not a Christian unless you have had this wonderful, miraculous, revelational experience that says that you're supposed to be a Christian. God doesn't call everybody the same way. He calls us in different fashions. Jesus offered a call to certain men to be his disciples. And in John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, when Jesus says, I chose you, he's not telling those guys that he chose them for salvation. He's saying, I chose you for a specific reason, a task at hand. And these were his disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Sadius, Simon, Bartholomew, and Judas. We know Judas is not going to be in heaven. But Jesus chose him. What for? With this text, he chose them for a specific task. We know that Judas was chosen as the one that would then betray him. All right, so we have to understand that sometimes God chooses us for a specific task, a specific ministry, a, a service option. And he offered this call to these fellows and at other times, the call to serve in the kingdom of Christ is offered through other people. Timothy became a minister because Paul chose him. And Paul, who was preaching and who was going about establishing churches and spreading the gospel message around the world, he recognized something in Timothy, and he wanted Timothy to follow with him and to serve him and to be his associate and to go out. Why? Because Timothy had already had some wonderful training that his mother and his grandmother had explained to him the scriptures. And so Timothy was chosen by Paul. But then Paul tells Timothy to choose some men who would be faithful and who would lead the church as well. Now, Sean just mentioned we had a call that went out at, at CIY. And some have understood that calling and they have surrendered their life to Christ. And they, they have been offered the gift of salvation. Others received a calling to ministry. And isn't it wonderful that we've got within our midst right now five young men and women who understand that God is going to use them somewhere in this world in ministry? And, isn't that awesome? Now, now, there may have been some miraculous thing that happened in their life to get them to that. And, and for some, it may have just, they heard the man up on stage say, would you be willing to serve? Maybe it's on a mission field somewhere. Maybe it's going to be in your local church. We don't know where it is that God is going to use them. I never understood that God was going to bring me back here. I ran like that prodigal child, you know. But God calls us to do specific ministry things. Maybe we can summarize this calling to ministry by saying it may be spectacular in some way. Because sometimes that happened in the Bible. Or, or we may say that it's just an ordinary invitation from some other individual. And that happened in the Bible as well. But we know that God offers a calling to people. Now listen to this. He may be calling you. Did you hear that? He may be calling you to do some specific ministry in his kingdom. You may not have to wait for some miraculous burning bush or a blinding light on the road to Washington. It may be that you're just listening right now and through my conversation with you, he's giving you a call to serve him. 
Moses got that call when he was 80 years old. How many of you are 80? (laughs) You may just be beginning. All right. Samuel got that call when he was just a little boy. I think without constant attention to this call, the church is going to be minimized. Now there's always, scripturally, it's it's very evident, there's always a remnant of people in our world who are going to be faithful to God. Sometimes you may think you're the only person like Elijah, but there's always those who will not bow a knee to Baal or any other God, but they will be faithful to God. But you too may have had this calling. Third, the language of this word chosen or election is sometimes used in the Bible not for individuals, but for groups. And usually we see that biblically about the nation of Israel. I mean, that's, that's who the Bible often speaks about as being chosen or being elect. It's the people of Israel. And in this case, again, the election in view is for their service and not their salvation. Just because you're Jewish, Paul has already told us, doesn't mean that you're better off, that you're going to have your salvation because you're Jewish. That doesn't cut it. However, you have been a chosen race of people for a specific purpose, Israel. The nation was chosen specifically to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. You see, you go all the way back to the beginning of the, of, of in the garden there, and, and Genesis and Adam and Eve have sinned and they've been cast out, and God has put a curse upon them. And part of that curse, there's also a blessing that through woman would come one through her seed that would be the Messiah who would return everything back to a wonderful relationship with God. And he promised that, but he's got to fulfill that somewhere along the road. And that's why he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth and so on until eventually through that nation of people under descendants of Abraham, Jesus would come. They were chosen for the purpose of bringing Messiah into this world. They were not chosen for their salvation. Otherwise, he never would have given them the law. They wouldn't have had to obey or disobey. He would have said, you're you're my people, you're all coming here. No. You see, God's main point in Romans 9 in this section is that we're going to see Paul defending God's sovereign right to unconditionally choose either individuals such as Pharaoh or groups such as Israel for roles of service without being bound to guarantee them their salvation. But in a similar way, the language of election is also used of God's new elect body, the new Israel, which is the church. We have also been chosen to carry out his ministry. Now, while not strictly parallel with the Old Testament Israel in this age of the church, as the body is, is now God's chosen people. people, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, in this election, as part of an election to service, when Peter here describes the church as a chosen race, he adds the purpose of God choosing them. Why? What did he say there? Well, he said, you've been chosen that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Now, he had elected or chosen Israel for the preparation of this wonderful proclamation. And he's chosen the church, this group of people, to proclaim the good news that Messiah has come. All right? So the old Israel was chosen to bring Messiah in through them. The church, the new Israel, is chosen to proclaim Messiah has come. 
That's our task, to take the gospel message with us wherever we go in the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all of his commandments. And he'll be with us. So we have a task as well. So in terms of service, that's who we are. Fourth, this language that is being used for chosen is sometimes applied to groups in the sense of choosing for salvation, that God is going to keep them as his own, but in a very special manner. See, here the Bible speaks about this group as being chosen or predestined for salvation, not in the sense that every individual within that group is, but this group is there, all right? The group is, is a category of those who are a part of it that are in that aspect of receiving this gift of salvation. The key to understanding this is Paul's treatment here of predestination. He's going to use that in Ephesians chapter 1. So we have to step out of Romans and go to the, the letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, beginning in verse 3 through verse 14. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly bodies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. And in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So his main point is not the predestination of individuals for salvation in essence, but the predestination of all the Jews as a nation, and then the predestination of all the Gentiles to be a part of his chosen people. That's what Paul has been talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. That you've all blown it, but he's got a plan to take all those people who have blown it and to unite them together, both Jew and Gentile, and to make a new relationship and a new covenant. One that is based upon his gift of grace for any and all who would believe in him. However, God's choice to make salvation available to both groups and to unite them as the church, he goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 22, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Right? You had no relationship with Christ because you were Gentiles. All right? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't a part of his chosen people. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's who the Gentiles were. That's who we were. All right? But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both no longer to each other, but he would reconcile both us, both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostilities. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, through Jesus, both the Jew and the Gentile, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, now, if you continue reading in Ephesians, you go into chapter 3, you're going to discover that there has been this great mystery that God has kept hidden through all the ages that the prophets spoke about, but they didn't quite understand. And the mystery is this, that Messiah, that the Christ would come and he would allow the Gentiles to be a part of the people of God. Ah that he was going to establish a new covenant with them, that the old would be fulfilled and would no longer be validated because now there's a new one that is open for all people, not just the people of Israel, but anybody in the world who wanted to be united in his household of faith, he was going to do that through Jesus. We then, we then as the church whether we are Jewish or Gentile, we then are the chosen people of God. We are His Israel. That's unique. Yes, the Jews were chosen, but they weren't chosen for salvation. You have to understand that. Just because you're Jew. Paul says, doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. You still have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and rely upon the gift of grace that he's going to offer to you for the redemption of your sins. All right? You have no leg up because you're Jewish. You have no leg up because you're Gentile. Because he has taken the hostility of these two groups and brought them and united them together into one. He has chosen us now to be his people the church. Finally, the language of, of choice or election or predestination is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to the fact that God has indeed, he has chosen specific people even before the foundation of this world and he has predestined them to salvation. Now, now both, we had this aspect of, of Calvinism and non-Calvinism. We, we hear that talked about a lot in our generation today, all right? We have this, and it's recognized that Calvinists and non-Calvinists, they come to this understanding that there, that there is, there are people that God has chosen specifically. And he's used them, but he's also graciously given them his gift of salvation. Now, in Calvinism, they would teach you that a terminology we'll hear often is called tulip. All right, it's five steps that which John Calvin and, and, and people through the years have gone on to understand, okay, this is what's speaking about when it comes to our relationship with Christ. But the second thing within TULIP is this unconditional election. All right? And within this approach, what they're saying is that it is believed that God chooses individuals unconditionally and that he did that sometime in eternity past. And that God surveyed in advance everything that was going to happen in the future and the individuals who would be born and in the human race. And he chose to save some people 
while also not choosing some people for salvation and leaving them then just for hell. Now this unconditional election sets us up that we have no choice in the matter. We can't respond because he's going to give us this irresistible grace that we're just going to eventually come to it. All right? It also means that, that God does this without any regard whatsoever to the response of the chosen individuals that has made God to announce conditions of salvation. And we know that God has offered some conditions of salvation. We see that in Scripture. All right? But non-Calvinist approach, which is what I'm going to take, if you want to know where I stand, it's this. It has three main points to it. First, God does choose or he predestines some people to be saved. The language of election is, is, or choosing is definitely applied to us as individuals. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So God does choose specific people at times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, now that's, the second, that's the first point. The second point is this, that our election is conditional. There are certain things that Jesus anticipates that we will do in order to have this relationship with him. God specifies in advance what those conditions of, of a sinner must meet in order to be chosen. In the New Testament, those conditions are laid out simply. Faith, repentance, confession, baptism. He wants us to be obedient to his commands, and he tells us his commands are not burdensome. and His commands are based on love the actions or decisions that we need to make in order to be a part of that chosen people of God for our salvation faith and repentance they are not gifts though an aspect of faith is a gift and it's not a gift that God just arbitrarily places upon some people in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 does not say that faith is a gift of God. Matter of fact, it tells us that it is grace that is that gift. So he says there in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own, but it's the gift of God. Grace is the gift, not my faith. All right? Nor should Acts 13.48 be translated as saying, as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. Now there's, there's translations in our English language that have that statement. As I mentioned earlier about the, this idea of a middle and a passive voice, the word that is used here in Acts 13.48 is a middle voice. It is something that I do unto myself rather than having being done to me. Alright? So, Rather, it should be translated this way. Those who were determined, those who chose to have eternal life, believed. Some translations may even put that those who believed, they were appointed or they were chosen for eternal life. So, when we look at this word, tetekamenoi, which is a perfect middle voice participle, plural nominative masculine. How's that for a declension breakdown? All right? All right? So when we look at that, it is, it's not passive as some translations make it. It is middle voice. J.W. McCarvey, in his commentary on the book of Romans, he makes this statement. He said, the word rendered, ordained, or appointed, and this passage is the word tasso. All right? a term which is not employed in a single instance in the New Testament in the sense of passive, foreordained, predetermined, where the idea is to be expressed. In other words, they're uniformly used instead of this one. 
So the word in question has this generic term, has no single word in English that fully represents it, and it's also a generic term that is best described or represented in our, in our phrase to set in order or to determine something, to place things in order. All right? Our English word dispose, now not throw away, but dispose has a similar usage. It means to arrange in a certain order and applies primarily to the extent of external objects. But when one's mind is found arranged in order or in accordance with something specifically, then he is said to be disposed to such and such a belief. He has set his mind, determined what he's going to believe in such and such a way. All right. So at some previous time in their history, as Paul is writing to the, or as Paul is, is preaching there at Acts chapter 17, he says the Gentiles, like other people, had this unresolved understanding of, of eternal life. Whether they didn't quite get it or they never went to seek it out or whatever, because they hesitated on it, now their minds were being set in order properly when it comes to what eternal life is and so they wanted to believe in Jesus so then they set their mind in order and they'd resolve themselves to believe in him so the bottom line is this that some people they choose to meet the 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 conditions and some people do not choose to meet the conditions that are set forth in order the Bible says emphatically that God wants all people to be saved. So he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, to be, uh, of, of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And then Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So these verses clearly and consistent with the idea of unconditional election. In other words, if you don't have a choice, then why are we saying God wants all people to be saved? He gives us that opportunity. One of our favorite verses is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, what? The world? No. For God so loved certain people in the world that he gave his only son, right? No. He loved us all. The Bible is very clear that it's not that everyone is willing to meet these conditions. So in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for that final time, he stops and he breaks down and he weeps. And in this conversation in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But then he, he sadly acknowledges this last statement. He says, you are not willing. Jesus is saying, I wanted to bring you all together. I wanted to bring in redemption for you. I wanted to protect you and shelter you, but... You don't want it. You don't want it. You see, when we look at passages like John 5, 21, it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will in general. Jesus wishes to give life to all sinners, but He's not going to bestow that upon the entire world. This is not universal salvation. We have to also choose Him. The third point is this, that God from eternity past in His foreknowledge has already foreseen who will and who will not meet these conditions of His grace that applies to their salvation. So we look in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. And Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a condition, is it not? The condition is you need to confess, you need to believe. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction now between who? 
Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So, so based upon God's foreknowledge of who is going to understand the call and accept the call and meet the conditions of his call, He did not predetermine that everyone was going to believe and everyone was going to repent, yet he did also know who would believe, who would repent, because he is God omniscient. He knows all these things. Whether or not the call produces results in a man's life depends not on the call that is given, but on how it is received. Jesus speaks about a parable in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, about a sower. And he explains to his disciples and to the people that there was a sower who went out and he started tossing seed out onto the different types of ground, different types of soil, from the, from the rich and healthy to the, to the path, to the storms, to the rocky. Wherever the, so, the, wherever the seed fell also enabled it or disabled it from growing and becoming healthy. Later, when he was trying to explain that parable to his disciples, he told them that that seed is the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel message that brings salvation. And that our hearts are the ground upon which it falls. I pray that you understand the call of God in your life. A call to serve Him, but also a call to receive the gift of grace that offers you salvation and that we don't put it aside but we allow it to to flourish and grow in us let's pray father we thank you for today and the blessing in it we know that you have loved us with an everlasting love you have set in place even before the foundation of this world was created, the Scripture tells us that you, you knew who we would be, what we would do, and why we would need you. Father, may we put our faith and our trust in you to receive this gracious gift of salvation that there's no way we can earn on our own. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.